I looked at a study by the NIH that said that the rate of pelvic pain in men was somewhere around 2 to 10%. And I thought that number was really interesting because number one, I think it's probably a huge underestimation simply because it's such a stigmatized issue. So I feel like men are not necessarily going to go to their doctor and say, hey, listen, I have pain when I ejaculate or, you know, whatever. And then I found another study that said that it was somewhere around 5 to 33%, which is just so funny when you look at like these studies. But I think that it's safe to say that I think we could all agree that it's definitely an underestimation of sorts. So it's pretty common, I think. I mean, I see it so much in my practices. topics in men's health. If you have questions that you are too afraid to ask, we have the answers. This week, our episode is titled Pelvic Pain in the Ass, Understanding Pelvic Pain in Men. I'm Dr. Kevin Chu, and I'm joined as always with my co-host, Dr. Justin Dubin. What's going What's on, good, Kev? Buddy? It is another rainy, shitty summer day here in Miami. Hot as hell, but we'll get through it. How are you doing over there? Oh, it's a, It's been beautiful, sunny, you know, West West Side LA. It's been about you know nice crisp eighty five. I, I gotta say, I'm I'm enjoying I am summer right now. Absolutely melting, <laughs> but it's all right. You know, summer means summer concerts. I'm going to see Dave Matthews this weekend. Well, I will have seen it already by the Ooh, time everyone's nice. listening. Nice. Very excited to see him. I've seen him two or three times already. I've seen him up in West Palm. I've seen him in Chicago. Awesome live show. Just an awesome show. So I am pumped. So happy. Just the best. Wait, I want to I want to ask you one thing though. You know, I see all in the news that they're talking about, and I remember when I was when, when I was in Miami, the water's warm, but you know, all the news now is blasting like it's like hot tub, like, like the beach, the water temperatures in the ocean. I was yeah. uh, I Have was you in the water in? about a Have month you, ago. Like, I haven't gone in the last month, but I thought it was yeah. awesome. I see. I'm someone who I don't like freezing cold water. Grows growing up in Jersey, like I didn't like jumping into yeah. that ocean. I didn't, it was just cold. I like it to be warmer. I still find it refreshing. Oh, absolutely. Like piss warm, Listen, right? Piss you, you like the piss, piss warm. Like, right? <laughs> like what's going to change? I like the water. Like I like, you know, my pace is just piss. After you take a piss, you're like, yeah, wow, it's, like, it's nice feel and like warm I'm around home. here, right? You know, uh, <laughs> feel like I'm back in the office. <laughs> but, you, you prefer warm? You prefer cold? Oh, but that. Uh, no, 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 no. I loved, I loved the uh, the ocean yeah. temperature uh, over in Miami. But you know, getting up to like hundred degrees, that's that's I mean, that's pretty hot. The ocean is not getting to that's 100 degrees. Normal. What are you talking about? That's boiling. That's literally Dude, boiling that's what temperature. No, no, no. That's a hundred degrees Celsius, bro. Dude, yeah, I'm saying Wait, 100 I don't degrees. understand temperature at all. Clearly, <laughs> Wait, the water can't be 100 degrees. <laughs> It was. It was measured. The highest temperature, uh, like almost ever recorded, was measured like right outside uh, Key Largo or like out down the Keys. It was a hundred degrees. Like, I don't. Last week, I can't. Which believe is I don't insane. Understand boiling like, versus usually like, Celsius versus Fahrenheit. 
yeah, that's that's well, yeah, Celsius, hundred degrees Celsius is when things boil. That makes sense. We would all be dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that just blew my mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let's get to stuff that we 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 know more about. All right, How, so we had a fantastic episode. Um, uh, talking yeah, about, you know, we were joined by Dr. Sonia yeah. Bellani. She's um, she's a friend of mine, I, I, now a friend of Kevin's, obviously, too. I met her a while back, um, and she is truly a pelvic pain guru. She's at Pelvic Pain Doc on Instagram. Uh, and, you know, she's a trained OBGYN with a fellowship specializing in pelvic pain. And she's the author of Dr. Sonia's Guide to Navigating Pelvic Pain. And although she is an OBGYN, um, there is a crossover here for pelvic pain, and she does treat men as well. Um, she's currently practicing in New York City, where she helps treat both urological and gynecological pelvic pain syndromes, including pelvic floor dysfunction, interstitial cystitis, prostatitis. And these are all things that we actually do cover in the episode. And now, a lot of guys are probably out there thinking like, why the fuck are we, we talking about pelvic pain? Well, believe it yeah. or not, we see this all the time. All the time, man, all the time. And if you're someone listening out there that's ever experienced some sort of scrotal discomfort, you know, just, you know, any, and it could be yep. related to how you urinate. It could be related to, you know, sexual function keep listening to this episode because you're going to learn how much the pelvic muscles actually influence and, you know, cause issues that you feel in your genital area or in your, you know, you, you, you might be a young guy and be told that, Hey, you, you have an enlarged prostate because right. those are what your symptoms seem consistent with. But Hey, no, actually I it's literally probably saw your a guy muscle. today who I sent for pelvic floor physical therapy, young guy, and he told me he saw a urologist previously who said, oh, you know, it's just, uh, you know, just deal with it. It's fine. It happens. And it's just like, what are you talking about? You know, like, so, you know, these are things that I, I also think it's mostly in a lot of young men, right? Like, and young guys don't want to talk about it. Yeah. Usually yeah. I feel like I see it mostly in these like healthy dudes who are lifters or they're, you know, they're doing a lot of, you know, standing at work or they're sitting long periods of time and something goes wrong in their pelvic floor and they're just, they have a testicle pain, they have a groin pain, they have some kind of perineal, which is the gooch, the ABC, the nacho, that part of your, your uh, area, the grundle. So, you know, <laughs> these are all things that like healthy people get. It's not just like old people. That's what I commonly experience. What about you, Kev? Yeah, no, you're absolutely, you know, spot on. I actually use after this episode, I started using Dr. Sonia's webpage because on her webpage, she has this list that says like, you know, we'll, we'll, let's talk right. about chronic prostatitis here for an example. But basically it states chronic prostatitis that has every single symptom. And I just show my patients that who are like, no, nah, I don't think pelvic, you know, pelvic floor physical therapy is going to help me out. And I show them that I'm like, is this what you're experiencing? And they can run through almost every single bullet point. And yeah, like, that's a good point. Fuck. Yes, that's exactly what I'm, you know, what I'm, 
experiencing and i'm like dude get out of my office let's get to the physical therapist dude and, and you know it, and it's such a crazy thing because like people come in and they want to hear that we have medicine or whatever but often i mean and and we do talk about things sometimes you do need medicine right a prostatitis you know anti-inflammatories sometimes it's bacterial of course but a lot of this does involve other things and it sometimes takes two or three visits for me to convince guys to do that um, now I, I'm hoping that, right. you know, maybe a lot of guys will realize today that, you know, pelvic floor problems happen to men too. We all have pelvic pelvises. We all have the muscles inside. We all have the nerves inside. So we're all impacted by it. And, um, you know, if you're having these issues, go talk to your doctor about it because there's a lot of different things to consider. And, uh, Hopefully today, you know, I think there's probably a lot of guys who don't want to talk about it because they're they're really confused or they're unsure who to go to. And, and now you have somewhere to go. You have a resource. So hopefully this gets some guys motivated to deal with this because it can be treated and it can be fixed. Absolutely. You're right. It, it can be treated. And when you when we'll talk a lot about it and Dr. Sony is going to kind of go over some, you know, kind of highlight some of the successes and you'll see that this is something that as long as you kind of you know, we're, we're, we're docs and we, you know, if you need something like medicine, then yeah, that's what we would offer. Right. But we see enough. So if we're offering or we're recommending pelvic floor physical therapy, there's a reason. And so, and yeah. I think and also just as as another thing we talk about some lifestyle things you can do. There's a lot of different ways in which, you know, your pelvic pain issues can be resolved or mitigated or at, at least prevented. Um, so yeah, I think that's about it, Kev. Uh, I think we get into the episode. I think it's a good follow-up to our previous one because, you know, we're still kind of in that pelvic region and, and there it's all located, uh, down below. So let's get into it. And before we, we do go to the episode, I do want to thank all of our listeners. We're seeing a couple more reviews on our, uh, Apple podcast. I want to see some more reviews, five stars. If you can give us a comment on Spotify, the same thing that's always appreciated for us. Um, so, so check that out, subscribe to our YouTube as well. We really need to start boosting that. Um, but, uh, thanks for listening yeah, as always yeah. and, uh, enjoy the episode. Please comment on Justin's, you know, knowledge base that he thinks 100 degrees fahrenheit <laughs> well i learned boil. something new today <laughs> <laughs> there you go all right all right enjoy the episode as men's health specialists we know guys are shaving their balls yeah we examine a lot of you so we literally see it but we also have the data showing it too that's right according to research over 85 percent of men trim their pubes not only that, but research shows that over 70% of women prefer a partner with at least partially trimmed pubic hair. So guys, we know you're trimming the edges, and we know that most women prefer you manscape. So if you're going to shave your balls, why not use the best men's grooming kit around? We're talking about Manscaped. With the Manscaped Performance Package 4.0, you get the Lawnmower 4.0 with their all-new skin-safe electric trimmer that protects your balls from getting those cuts we've all had in the past. You also get the Weed Whacker 2.0 for trimming your nose and ear hairs. And let me tell you guys, we all need to do a better job of this. Yep, that's right. Kevin and I both have the performance package, and we really love it. Manscaping has never been easier for us. And for our listeners, we have a special promotion. Go to manscaped.com and enter promo code MANUP and get 20% off your first purchase. Go get your Manscaped products today. Your balls and your partner will thank you.
All right, Sonia. So let's start very general because I think for most guys, they don't realize that pelvic pain can be an issue for them. So how common is pelvic pain in men and what are the different causes of it? So, you know, I looked at a study by the NIH that said that the the rate of pelvic pain in men was somewhere around two to 10%. And I thought that number was really interesting because number one, I think it's probably a huge underestimation simply because it's yes. just stigmatized issues. Yes. So I feel like men are not necessarily going to go to their doctor and say, Hey, listen, I have pain when I ejaculate or, you know, whatever. Um, right. Uh, but so yeah, that was the data that I found there. And then I found another study that, that said it was somewhere around five to 33%, which is just so funny when you look at like these studies with yeah it's it's like yeah um but i think that it's safe to say that we could all agree that it's definitely an underestimation of sorts so um it's pretty common i think i mean do i mean i see it so much in my practice a lot i actually see a lot i would say almost three to four patients a week at this point i i'm i'm not kidding i see it a whole lot i see more oh i see really Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. it's and, and just like you said, Sonia, a lot of the guys, like when I'm like, hey, this may be, you know, some sort of pelvic pain issue. And a lot of guys are like, nah, nah, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, like you're going to have to elaborate a little more. So that's why I think this conversation is going to be great. Yeah. Because it's going to yeah, really educate a lot of our listeners. One thousand percent. It's really hard to convince people that they have a pelvic floor issue. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, this is really good. So what's the... What's the most common, oh, well, we didn't talk about causes, but well, what is the most common cause for pelvic pain in men? So I would say it's category 3B, chronic prostatitis, chronic pelvic pain syndrome, right? What the heck does that even right. mean? That's a, it's a, and which, which is why I think the word prostatitis is so funny because I find so many men come into my office and they can have symptoms of frequency, urgency, they can have pain in their rectum. They can have pain with ejaculation. They can have testicular pain. And do you know what they've all been told? Yeah. That they yep. all have prostatitis. And you're like, well, <laughs> yes, yep. but also no, right? Like, like it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> it's like saying you're the cause of your, your issue is inflammation. And they're like, inflammation from <laughs> what? You know? Um, but I, I would say the, the most common cause is that. And, but what I mean by that is really like pelvic floor dysfunction in a man. I mean, I think it's super duper common. Um, I think it presents itself in so many different ways. I think men are diagnosed with acute bacterial prostatitis, chronic bacterial prostatitis, given like months of antibiotics before they're actually diagnosed yep. with category 3B, um, which I'm sure you guys will go over or we can all go over together just for listeners to understand the difference. But I think it's important because it's empowering to men to be like, wait a minute, there's an actual diagnosis for what I have. It's not just like this broad term. Yeah. And I also think it's like when, when we talk to our patients and I'm sure when you talk to your patients, it's unfortunately when it comes to pelvic pain and we're going to do a whole separate episode on testicular pain, which is obviously still in, in that umbrella. Um, a lot of guys come and you're like, I believe you. And, you know, they've seen like four different doctors already yeah. for it. And a lot of the times they're like, yeah, they just say it's just going to be fine. Or I've had like the same antibiotic for like the last six months. And, and, you know, they're frustrated, understandably so. 
and they're not happy because they still have the same issues. It's so true. I mean, and, and most of them have been on a couple of weeks, if not months of antibiotics. And then ultimately, you know, as physicians, we're building resistance patterns. We're also like probably oftentimes they'll feel better on antibiotics. And so they're convinced now that it's infectious in nature. And you're like, no, well, antibiotics also have anti-inflammatory properties to them. So that might be why you're feeling a little bit better while you're on it, but your symptoms come back when you're off of it. But I think it gets confusing to men and to, to providers, you know? Yeah. You know, it kind sure. of reminds me of, uh, you know, Justin and I went to, went to residency together and I, you know, in one of our clinics, I definitely remember seeing this guy that had been on like eight months of antibiotics. Oh like each resident, was, <laughs> each resident was like, Oh, it seems like every time you come off of it, you're not getting better. So let's just put you on another round and we'll like, see you in a few months. But it's like we're dermatologists you know, giving doxycycline for like a year or something, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's, but you do see it. So I think it's important that guys are aware of all these things. But, you know, I, I think that kind of leads to the first question. When we're talking about prostatitis specifically, um, can you break down a little bit of what prostatitis is, you know, with regards to the acute and then versus the chronic and, and then what causes them? Yeah. So, I mean, I like to think of prostatitis like a broad term. Like I said, like it's like inflammation to me. It really means nothing. I actually hate the term because I think it's just ridiculous. But if you break yeah. it, you know, right? But as I mean, I break it down in my brain into like four different categories, which I'm sure you guys too. The first being acute bacterial prostatitis, like, is there an actual infection yep. present? Um, you know, are there fevers? Are, is, does the prostate feel boggy? Is the patient, you know, like, are, did the symptoms come on pretty acutely? Is there actual bacteria in the urine or the semen that you can see? Because, you know, if you have something to target, you can treat that. Um, the second category being chronic bacterial prostatitis. Now, this gets like a little, I feel like, iffy because I'm not sure how many times I've actually seen this in my clinical practice because generally I see patients with like non-bacterial prostatitis but um so right, you guys can right. probably speak to this a little bit more but chronic bacterial prostatitis where patients are actually getting these recurrent UTIs or they're not actually clearing yeah. the bacteria um and that's really kind of I'll where it's not as yeah. often I no Sorry, I'm just gonna say it's not as often. I think I think the other ones you're about to mention are, I think, more common. Yeah, and then num the third class of back uh, prostatitis being category three A and category three B, and um, category three B not being non-bacterial uh, prostatitis, chronic pelvic pain syndrome. Category three A they call inflammatory. Category three B I think they call non-inflammatory. But truly, that means it's all inflammatory. I'm not sure I, you can really make a great yeah. distinction there. <laughs> right. um, you know, they say it's, it's if you do a prostatic massage and then you get a VB3 specimen. So the patient like pees in a cup after, and you know, you yeah. see leukocytes or white blood cells, but ultimately how yeah. you treat that or why you treat that differently doesn't necessarily make sense to me. So I just kind of grouped that into one so that, you know, non-bacterial prostatitis. And then the fourth category being asymptomatic inflammatory prostatitis. Again, I'm not sure, like, I don't, I, what do you guys see as urologists with that? Because I don't think I see that a lot in my clinical practice either. It doesn't no. really make sense to me. That definition, yeah. I like, it's like, a, I, I don't really think I see that. I think I see the 3A, 3B much yeah, more. one. One, like we see the acute bacterial prostatitis, and then yeah, the three A, three B are generally, I think, 
the most, right, Justin? At least. Yeah, because I think most of the time, at least, you know, if they if a patient has prostatitis, sometimes they like the bacterial one. Often they'll go to like an urgent care, they'll go to an ER, or they'll go, you know, to their primary who can kind of just give them an antibiotic and it kind of fixes it often. So, you know, even us, oftentimes we're that second, third person that they see for this problem, and right. usually at that point it hasn't been you know, it's been treated with an antibiotic. So if it was that acute bacterial, it's, it's probably been treated and, and is well, not the problem. Anymore. Well, how, how about on that note, Sonia? So, so let's, let's break down how we kind of approach treatment for all these different kinds of prostatitis for a, so acute bacterial prostatitis. So how do we treat that? Antibiotics. <laughs> Very simple. Easy, easy peasy. Just, then, you know, get uh, those how sensitivities. About, how about yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Chronic bacterial, I mean, I think, I think again, I, like, I don't see it that much in my clinical practice. I honestly don't like long-term antibiotics. So I think, like, the maximum I've ever given a patient is, like, two weeks of Leviquin or, and, in, in like, even at that, I would probably refer to urology if I thought it was true chronic bacterial prostatitis. Right. Um, but category 3B. the uh, non, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the causes of this are interesting. So uh, I like to think of it a little bit like how do the symptoms present? So I would say the most common symptoms with, you know, this type of prostatitis are things like frequency, urgency. Often men can describe pain with bladder filling. They can describe pain after ejaculation. Sometimes they just have perineal pain with sitting for long periods of time. Um, so you know, it can kind of present in this like large spectrum of, of ways. Um, oftentimes on exam, this is the real kicker. What you will feel is what I call trigger points. And they're actual banded areas of the levator muscles mm -hmm. that produce a twitch response. So, you know, guys, for the guys out there, when your urologist puts his finger in your bottom and takes a feel of the pelvic floor muscles, it'll actually spasm back. And that's the true definition of a trigger point. Um, and that's oftentimes what you find in, in a lot of these guys who are having, especially when they report things like pain at the tip of the penis, because... You know, all of this also to yeah. kind of complicate all this, this can all begin after an actual infection, right? So it can begin after someone has yeah. an STD. It can begin after a UTI. And so, you know, then we're as, as guys and patients are often convinced that there's still something wrong because it all started after that yeah. one time they slept with yep. whoever, you know? Um, and, and for me, like yep. on the yep. other end, end as like their provider, I'm like shaking them. Like, no, it's all negative. There's that no, you're not, you do not have an STD. I know <laughs> yeah. you're mad at like yeah. doing that or whatever. You're upset yeah. with yourself for sleeping <laughs> with that chick, but you're good or whoever. It doesn't matter. You're good. Okay. Let's keep moving. <laughs> um, but it's true, you know, cause like then you start to hone in on simply that. Um, but so with, with pelvic floor dysfunction, I mean, we can treat this by so many things. Like one thing, which is part and parcel is pelvic floor physical therapy, which is really, really important. Um, I yes. think the caveat to that is that oftentimes people are just given pelvic floor physical therapy. And I think that kind of staggers any type of, any type of um, 
like actual change for patients because what's going to help is pelvic floor physical therapy, but oftentimes using medications, things like Valium suppositories um, or using things like Baclofen suppositories, just some sort of a muscle relaxer to really get those muscles to release because muscles have muscle memory. Um, I will say the caveat to all of this. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Were you going to say something, Kevin? Yeah, no, no, I, no, I was actually going to say Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Ahead, I want to, I want to go back because I think this is something that it, me and Justin don't use. And so, so you use like Valium suppositories or different relaxants yeah, in the pelvic. Yeah, that's, that's that's what I was going to ask too. Yes, I do. Okay, because pelvic floor physical therapy works, but just like when you guys go to the gym, you don't get these muscles overnight, right? These muscles don't become hypertonic overnight. So expecting pelvic floor PT to work alone can work in a small subset of patients, but it's not going to be successful with all patients unless you do some adjunctive therapy like medications and if needed further, further like, like things like injections or Botox, that kind of stuff. Very interesting. Uh, that's a, that's something I just learned too, and it, and it makes sense. Um, but I also think like to get to the point of pelvic floor physical therapy, it takes a lot of convincing for a lot of guys. Oh yeah, and um, a lot of that too really is kind of just you know persistence, at least that I've told them. And and there are specific guys you see. You know, I see it's it's two groups of guys I usually see that kind of need pelvic floor physical therapy. It's these very, very anxious, you know, guys who carry their stress in their bodies, in their pelvis. And I'm like, I can just tell you probably have a tight <laughs> pelvic floor just by looking at you. Or it's these oftentimes athletes who are just, you know, jacked or, or maybe not or, or had an injury and have to recover a certain way. And they're just, their muscles, maybe their tone is off or something like that. That's kind of the two guys that I see. And both of them never want to do pelvic floor physical therapy. I don't know. Is that a fair, <laughs> a fair assumption to make with those kinds of things? I mean, I obviously don't like to generalize, but, but I, I, I can't say you're wrong. You're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you see this. So much, especially in, like you're saying, like CrossFitters, bikers, but oftentimes you can actually tell why that's going to happen because, you know, with people who are lifting heavy weights, what are you doing? You're contracting your core, you're contracting that levator complex a lot just to do a lot of the moves. Bike riders, you're sitting on a seat for long periods of time. So a lot of these pro cyclists, yeah, you can have a lot of pelvic floor dysfunction. Um, And then people that are anxious, this is men, women, both. I mean, we all fall into that category, right? We're very type A. And where do you hold tension? Just like you clench your jaw, you clench your pelvic floor, you know? And that's often why something stressful can actually cause this whole, what I call perfect storm. So, you know, you can see a lot of these guys be like, you know, I've been biking my whole life or I've been crossfitting my whole life. Why did this happen yeah. now? You know? Yeah. And so there's often that yeah. perfect storm that occurs, but no, I can't argue with you, Justin. You're not wrong. I'm glad you said it though. And not me. <laughs> Justin said it. It's all about Justin said it. <laughs> but I mean, no, look, I, I, go ahead. Guys. So, so I have a, I have a question. Cause I, I, you know, I don't know if there's an answer for this, but I find it a little bit difficult for me to kind of explain to my patients. So pain at the tip of the penis, how does that relate to like pelvic floor dysfunction? You know, I I have a tough time sometimes explaining it. I think theoretically in my mind, I kind of have an idea, but you know, 
Is, is yes. there an answer to that? Yes, there is. And it's a, it's a good one. It's the neuromuscular response that occurs. So we're thinking, you're thinking muscles, right? And so that's really what's stopping you from understanding right. the referral pattern. You do understand it, but that's what's stopping your brain from kind of putting together that referral pattern to the tip of the penis. Right. So, you know, or you just asked a good question to leeway into this, but it, it actually has to do with that pudendal <laughs> nerve, right? So like the pudendal nerve, and this is another right. common common diagnoses that a lot of that these guys get they say oh you have pudendal neuralgia another word i hate because it yeah. fucking means nothing right um <laughs> it really is no general is nothing yeah, yeah. yeah and you're like wait yeah. why well, and so i have a lot of these guys come in and so then you know they immediately Google pudendal neuralgia and it's like trauma to the area. And they're like, but I've never had trauma to the area, you know? Yep. And you're like, right. and, and then it's also like, but it's bilateral. You don't have unilateral pudendal neuralgia. So is it really pudendal neuralgia? You know what I mean? And so, I mean, I think what that is, that referral pattern of tip of the, at the tip of the at the tip of the penis is really like a pudendal neuritis it's an inflammation of the nerve at that end it's also why in women we see this as clitoral pain or we can see it as vaginal pain or we can see it as perineal pain but it's also why in men you could see it as rectal pain you see what i'm saying so it's all that nerve pathway and and that's oftentimes also why these guys are placed on things like amitriptyline nortriptyline gabapentin all of these meds yep. <laughs> and yep. um but ultimately, and, and now I'm going to sound a little hokey, but ultimately not assessing or treating root cause because you're putting a patient on gabapentin, but are you really altering the pelvic floor? If you're not, you're right. not going to see a huge difference. And ultimately, they're going to want to come off right. the medication. The way I look at it and I talk with my patients about it and when I'm trying to convince them it's their pelvic floor and I, I just say, listen, you know, there's so many muscles and nerves compacted into such a dense part of your body and your pelvis. And if one little thing gets inflamed or is, you know, going a little bit like on hyperdrive, then another part, it kind of sets all of it off and it can impact all of the things going on there. And, and those nerves obviously spread to other parts of your body including your penis, your testicles, you know, all over. So I, that's how I kind of look at it. And I counsel my patients. Um, and obviously when you think about that, from what you said, when you're doing athletics, when you're doing, you know, when you have some anxiety or stressors, I think it kind of, you can picture it better in your head where everything's kind of just condensing into this one fine area and whatever is in there is kind of suffering and going out into the to the rest of your body. So that's how I've kind of pictured it in my head. I don't know if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I think that's a great. And, yeah, and you know, sense. you think of the body like a pulley lever system. And so, you know, a lot of times it's just like essentially like nerves and muscles getting pulled in different ways. But, you know, it's interesting because you talk about the stress and the anxiety. And the one thing I wanted to say about that is that, you know, I, I'll, I'll, I will have patients come in and they'll say, you know, my primary care doctor put me on Xanax and it helped. And so it's, it's my wow. stress. You see that? that? And, and no, but so then they were convinced yeah. that it's their stress or their anxiety. Like, oh, I'm just anxious. This is all in my head. But you forget that things like Xanax and, and clonazepam and these medications, Valium are muscle relaxers at the same time. Right. So like you're actually the, it, 
getting that medication to relax your muscles and it's giving you relief. So it's not really in your head. Sure. Can stress make it worse? Sure. But is stress the cause? I mean, you could probably meditate till you're blue in the face. If you have real pelvic floor dysfunction, then you're not really going to be able to get rid of it in that way. You know, really makes sense. It really makes sense. Now, now here's the, the question though, you know, can you, Describe to us, because I think a lot of guys are intimidated by pelvic floor physical therapy because of the idea of, you know, that first off, most guys don't like having a rectal in the office as it is. Understandably, you know, they feel, you know, it is, it is, you know, pretty invasive. Now, can you, can you just describe to our listeners what a typical, you know, uh, pelvic floor therapy, you know, I guess course would be like for a patient? Obviously, you're not a pelvic floor physical therapist, but but I think you have a better idea than most of what that would be. And I think this is really important. I think it's actually a really important thing to go over with patients in the office because it is actually a scary thing to go to pelvic floor physical therapy and to have someone you don't know stick their finger up your ass and say, like, you know, breathe in, take a deep breath in, release. And you're like, what in the world, you know? The way that I like to explain it is that number one, there's a few different ways to do this. So we're talking about the pelvic floor muscles, but ultimately what we talked about and touched on are these trigger points, right? So you think about these trigger points like bands or like a guitar string, they can work anywhere in your body. So like as physicians, we probably have a ton of trigger points in our neck. You know what I mean? Um, we maybe in, even in our pelvic yeah. floors, but you know, like wherever, right? So, so, and that's the same thing that's occurring. It's just occurring in a different part of your body. And we should kind of normalize it like that. Cause if you think about it like that, when you get a nice, massage and like not even just a massage like what i call myofascial release where someone puts their thumb or finger on your knot and they actually Mm -hmm. push on it and releases and you're like oh oh my god i can move my neck again it's the same thing you know what i mean right and and that's exactly what a pelvic floor (laughs) physical therapist is doing um they're they're really trying to release the knots that are occurring down there i will say that when men have this and it gets really bad it's hard to even have a rectal exam so i hear that you know what i mean and so that's oftentimes why you why you guys do want to use these meds because you want them to have some sort of pain relief like you can't expect them to function in like 10 out of 10 pain you know what i mean um but pelvic floor pt is really important in doing things that are called like myofascial release which is releasing those muscles they do something else which is called biofeedback where they actually stick electrodes onto those muscles and you can kind of see how they're contracting in certain moments. Now that's not used as therapy, but that's really used as a diagnostic tool for men to kind of understand what's happening in their bodies. Um, Other things that are scary, but empowering are things like wands, Okay, rectal wands. So, so a lot of my guys will learn how to use a wand. They will, they will learn how to put the wand in their rectum and do their own trigger point release. And I think that's really, really important. Interesting. Yeah. Can we, can we yeah. elaborate on that? Because yeah, I actually yeah. don't know. Not, I, I, I have no know idea that. what a rectal wand is. Oh my gosh, is. you guys! Ah, oh, this is the best conversation. I wish I brought it home with me. It's unfortunately <laughs> nine o'clock here in oh, New York right. time. But um, so a, a rectal wand can. I mean, there's many companies that make them, so like Fair Wand, and you know, like I mean, like even if you just looked up rectal wand, you'd find a few. All right, and it's basically if you think of like an S-shaped wand, okay. And the bottom of that S-shaped wand is like a thin, 
a thin oh that that was like the wrong um hand move a thin a thin (laughs) oh god this is like late um it's like a thin wand and and what you do is you place it into the rectum and you actually go to the muscles and you hold pressure on them some of these wands even vibrate some of these wands even change temperature. So heat releases muscles. Oh. So you can do like a heated wand. Um, but it's really great. Yeah. In helping those muscles to release. I mean, I have one kind of for my back, but I think I understand. It's, it's like curved. So that way you can like apply exactly. the pressure, right? Exactly. Is that what it is? That would be way too long. <laughs> like, it's, it's actually very friendly looking for all you guys out there. Friendly, short, great colors. I mean, it's like it works. Awesome. <laughs> that's it's it's very very that's very interesting. Um, that just. Now, I, I, I'm going to ask this. I don't know if you're going to a- be able to answer this. While we're talking about, you know, wands in the, in the butt, can you elaborate on not pelvic pain, but just, you know, finger in the butt for guys? And is there the erogenous mm. aspect? Of yeah. That? You know, can you comment on that? Because obviously, I think, you know, butt play, both for men who have sex with men and men who have sex with women, uh, is a big thing. And, can you elaborate on, you know, that erogenous zone uh, for men and yeah. their butthole? We are so so in the when you're doing pelvic floor physical therapy or you're treating someone for pelvic floor dysfunction, we are not near that erogenous zone. Okay, so like it is not, gonna, you, you no, know, right. like so. Yes, I absolutely agree that there are those zones, but when we are treating you, you're not going to feel that. And in fact, I think it's even hard for oftentimes the anal sphincter just in response to all this contracts so significantly that even placing a finger becomes uncomfortable. Do you know what I mean? I think it also becomes difficult with these erogenous zones and like pleasure because of the way pain is perceived by our prefrontal cortex. Do you know what I mean? Because I think that it's like the pain gate theory. Like the second that you have pain, the the ability to feel pleasure in that area is almost impossible, you know? 100%. And um, that's exactly like when, uh, when like guys are like, when I do circumcision sometimes on adults and they're like, what if I get erection? I'm like, you're, you're not going to get it. (laughs) Your body's going to feel pain and it's going to stop. It's not going to really yeah, happen. I mean, so I think that that's, that's the difference there. Although I do get that question of people ask me like, is it, am I more apt to have pelvic floor dysfunction if, if I like butt stuff, you know what I mean? And the answer is no, um, that, that doesn't put you at a higher risk. That's you know what I mean? Um, but it's an interesting, it's an interesting thought, but yeah, that I, I don't feel like that's an issue for patients when they're getting treated at least. Cause that might be a, something scary for patients when they walk in and they say, Oh, I don't want to feel aroused when this is happening. You won't, don't worry. That's not going to happen. Right. right. Yeah. So I can't, you know, go ahead, Kev. Oh, good. No, Justin, go ahead. Justin, go ahead. I just want to know, but can you give us now then a description of like why guys get why it is an erogenous zone like why do why does the butthole like a finger in the butthole or something in the butthole feel good for guys 
just as a complete side comment. Oh my gosh. I don't know that you mean like what part of the, the prostate is kind of causing. Yeah, is there a part of the pelvis? Like, is it the prostatic? It's, I, I believe it's the I prostate. I think it's the prostate, getting, but I think uh, that's because embryologically it's analogous to the clitoris in women. Right. And so like mm -hmm. when you look at that embryologic, like where we all come from, that's why, um, I think you guys think of that too. I'm pretty sure that's why, right. You know, Kev. Yeah, yeah. 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 I think we talked about another episode, didn't we? Which one? We did. Dr. Striker. I think we did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah just exactly what you said, Sonia. Yeah, there's the, the the embryological analogy between that and the clitoris. This is why, like, whenever you, you know, kind of massage the prostate, there's, like, some sort of, you know. Yeah. Pleasure. I mean, that's a pleasure. fact for right. sure. The the embryologically, like, to, cause I know that just for my women, because we always talk about the clitoris in women. And so I always say it's just like the prostate in men, you yeah. know. Um, so, but yeah, that's mm -hmm. definitely an interesting aspect. But also when we're talking about this, so we're talking about pelvic floor PT. So there's data on things like acupuncture too. And that data from, from acupuncture for, mm. for men with pelvic floor dysfunction or whatever we want to call chronic prostatitis, however you want to say it, is actually where data for things like trigger point injections and Botox for men with pelvic floor dysfunction comes from. It all stems from that initial acupuncture data. Let's go to Botox for a minute because I actually had a patient recently that came to me and asked me like, hey, doc, like, do you provide this and do you think I should do it? And I was like, honest, I was like, I actually don't know much about Botox for men in the perineal area. So could you kind of elaborate on that and like how it's done and how it's used for? Yeah. So, so we talked about these trigger points, right? We talked about even pelvic floor physical therapists going in and doing these this myofascial release, like holding pressure on the areas. But what we did kind of touched upon, which has to be kind of remembered, is that muscles have mem muscle memory. So yeah, you're trying to retrain this area, but it's just going to contract right back up, especially for men that have suffered for years and years right. and years. So, you know, back in the day, and I remember when I started doing Botox in men over 10 years ago. So, so back in the day before that even happened, when I was a fellow, we would do things like trigger point injections, where we would put an anesthetic into the pelvic floor. So what you would do is you would take a needle. And you'd put it what I call transperineally. Mm. Okay. So like you think about the guys, you know, for, for men, just so your way, when I say transperineally, like you're going through kind of your butt bone. Okay. Like just think of it like that. Okay. And now, now, and, and you're going yeah. into the, 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 ABC. the what? The ABC, the, the ass ball connection. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's good it's good um so, so you're going through through the abc and um you're actually putting a needle into that area and you're putting anesthetic in and that's diagnostic and therapeutic right because if you put anesthetic into that area and someone says to you i am pain-free baby then you knew that it was coming from that area do you see what i'm saying and so the concept of trigger points is essentially dry right. comes from dry needling is yeah. needling the area and then putting anesthetic in it the problem is again like we talked about with muscle memory anesthetic doesn't last for that long it lasts for a few hours so that's not giving you longevity right. so that's where utilizing botox to the pelvic floor really came from and and you know gives you more longevity 
when we're talking about longevity for a lot of these things, obviously Botox is something that you're probably going to need to get every few months or so. Um, does that also go along with pelvic floor therapy? You know, is it, are these things, you know, is this a lifelong Mm -hmm. diagnosis and treatment or is there like, is there hope where I'm done with it at some point? There's so much hope. So theoretically, if you were to put Botox into the pelvic floor and have a great physical therapist, you can do what I call, which is retrain the pelvic floor, which is kind of like a hard reset for the area. So ultimately I will say most of my guys, which is like, you know, 25% of my patient population, which is a good amount for someone who's like, you know, because that's how many people suffer that are looking for help. You know, Um, they don't come in every three months for Botox. So, you know, they come in for the first time we do Botox. Then generally we reevaluate within like eight to 12 weeks. We need to, we do another round. And then most of the time the pelvic floor PTs are really able to retrain the area in that amount of time. Um, So, and then, and then what I say say to patients is that, yes, if you think about the name, it's chronic, right? It's, it's something that you're going to have to, it can rear its ugly head at any point in life. And I only like to make guys aware of that because I think there's power in that because otherwise if something happens and it recurs, you start to spiral and you say, Oh my God, what did I do again? Did I, sleep with the wrong person? Was I, right. did I get, you know, like, what, point, um, cause point, so it yeah. can recur. Um, but there's nothing to be worried about. We can fix it. You know what I mean? And so like, it's oftentimes like one of those things where it's like, you just think of like wave patterns. Like I like, you like to be in remission and, and most guys can say that way, but if it was to recur, there's nothing bad about it. There's nothing scary about it. It's like having diabetes. You won't, you do, would you not have treat diabetes? You treat it. So you would treat this the same way. <laughs> Now that's great. Yeah. I, I, I wanted to bring in another thing that I think that a lot of is more a focus of women, but I think guys do potentially have an interstitial cystitis. Now, how common is this in guys? Um, cause I don't know how common it is. I feel like you see this definitely more than we do, but, uh, how, how common is, is it in men to get something like interstitial cystitis? See, it's going to be hard for me to throw out a number because that data that even that you looked at from the NIH really just says pelvic pain, right? And so you're really not kind of like right. stratifying patients into who has pelvic floor dysfunction and who has interstitial cystitis. Um, I will say it's in, in patients that have IC, it's less than 20% are men. So it's more common in women than it is in men. That having been said, I do have my fair share of male patients with interstitial cystitis or something like eosinophilic cystitis. In some patients, you can even have a ketamine cystitis. I mean, but ultimately with interstitial cystitis, there's some sort of disruption in what's called the gag layer of the bladder or the glycosaminoglycan layer. Um, And this layer is really like the protective layer for the bladder. So when you have holes in it, it's like walking outside in um, with a raincoat on that has holes, you're going to feel the rain a lot, right? You're going to be cold as opposed to person B who has a nice heavy raincoat on and doesn't feel that rain. That's interstitial cystitis. Um, so I kind of like to think of it like leaky gut of the bladder, because that's why people are like, oh, you know, you always hear about these Makes dietary sense. triggers, yeah. you know, like why, why do I have to stay away from coffee? Which by the way, mm-hmm. I hate I'm going to say this. I hate it when you all just give out the list. Okay. The list is like not the right thing to do because it's like, 
give out the list Whoa. all the time. I give out you, the you, list all the time. It's like the first thing I do. I'm like, well, you know, you, you know, blueberries are on that list, right? I mean, like, it's literally like for patients that follow it to a T, they're like, oh, I haven't eaten a blueberry in like six months. And I'm like, oh my God, you're going to be like nutritionally depleted. Like you don't need to follow the list. Like, first of all, like let's talk about a dietary trigger. So like what's the most, so, you know, like for that data on dietary triggers, and I can say this because I helped to write it. The data on the dietary triggers is skewed because there's a huge selection bias. The people that responded to the questionnaire were the ones who were more diet sensitive. So you selected for a certain population. Absolutely. So when you say 80% of patients with IC are diet sensitive, that's not fair. You know, that's not true. Um, but whenever I try to describe dietary triggers to a patient, I say, let's say you have coffee and, you know, somewhere within three to five hours, you say, oh my God, there's like this discomfort in my bladder and I got to go. Not that you have to go because look, in general, if we all have coffee, we got to go, right? It's not just the frequency alone. There has to be an increase in pain. Right. And that's a true dietary trigger. And just because coffee is a dietary trigger for you doesn't mean that alcohol is not a dietary trigger for someone else and not coffee. So it's really important to kind of sit down right. and go through the elimination diet and figure out what your dietary triggers are before you just, you know, listen to the list and come off of everything. <laughs> so I, I have a lot of patients who ask me about the elimination diet and they're always like, all right, so how long do I like kind of like diary for? Like how long am I kind of looking through my diet to kind of assess? Do you kind of like counsel them like, oh, you know, kind of go through like a week and kind of mark down everything? Or is it kind of just like, you know, spot I like to there? do it like, like you said, like I like a full week of understanding, like, is this an actual trigger? Like, meaning, are you ingesting it? And in, is it increasing pain? And that, that this actually applies to when patients are feeling better and they're trying to reintroduce foods as well. So even like, like, let's say we get you better. And then you say, I really miss my glass of wine at night. Like, can I please doc, can I go back to having that? And I say, so the first thing you want to do is you want to have this much wine. So I'm pointing to like an ounce, you know what I mean? You want to have like this much wine and you want to see what happens. If you do fine and you don't have an increase in pain, then the next day you can have maybe two ounces of wine and you don't want to introduce another trigger for the whole week. Do you see what I'm saying? So it just, you have to standardize it. Sense. Well, here's the thing. Let's let's take a bigger step back, though. And I think for a lot of our listeners, you know, we just mentioned a list. We mentioned the elimination diet. What about in general? What are some general preventative things like dietary things that and uh, we'll start with diet. I do want to follow up with potential exercises or lifestyle things that we can modify to either prevent or, you know, pelvic floor dysfunction, inter, you know, bladder issues. Where, what are some dietary things to just kind of in general? Obviously, I understand yeah. what you were saying. So things like caffeine, tomatoes, spicy foods in general are bladder irritants, right? So like they're just going to irritate the bladder. So if you already have mm. a disruption in that bladder wall, it's going to irritate the bladder. So it's probably in your best interest to stay away from some of those trigger foods that are going to be triggers for everyone. Now, that having been said, if someone said to me, like, you can't have your cup of coffee in the morning, I'd be like, 
No, you know, because ultimately this is a quality of life thing, right? Um, (laughs) So we have to find ways around it. So for like a lot of my guys, I'll recommend, okay, get, get a little cafex. It's like, it's like a mushroom derivative of, of coffee, but there's way less caffeine in it or drink decaf or or take pre-leaf you know like you take pre-leaf 30 minutes before you ingest it like actually neutralizes the acid in the bladder take take that 30 minutes before you take a a trigger food i didn't know i had no idea yeah pre-leaf it's over the counter yeah and you take it 30 minutes before and it's just like sodium bicarb for the bladder but ultimately like it it just can if something is a true trigger but you need it and you want it use it you know what i mean because this at the end of the day, we're all saying the same thing. This is a quality of life issue, right? So like, I think that's why so many people don't take it seriously at the same time, because it's not like prostate cancer, right? It's not like, you know, it's not like, so, so people will say, you're not going to die from it. So why does it really matter? Well, it does matter because ultimately these guys are really affected and they're unable to live the quality of life that they want to live. So that's why I don't like the list. Okay. (laughs) Fair enough point man now so let's follow up on justin's justin's other question so the the other thing you asked was uh was about so exercise right justin that's what you want to know yeah any exercise that may predispose to you know you know flares so you know anything that's going to contract your core contract your pelvic floor things like squats things like heavy lifting things like spinning or biking these are all things that can kind of exacerbate your pelvic floor so to speak that having been said you know, I have a lot of professional athletes in my practice. If I said, stop cycling, they'd walk, they'd flip a table, walk outside of my office and be like, I'm never going back to her again. So like, that's not necessarily the answer. You know what I mean? So the answer is that you understand that this is a trigger for you. So we're going to treat it with either like things like meds, injections, like PT. But at the same time, when you get on that bike or when you do that heavy lifting, you really want to balance it out after the fact with a warm bath. Like, so like heat relaxes muscles. So that's really great after you, you do something strenuous, then you want to do like a lot of hip opener exercises, like get those muscles to lengthen so that they don't contract. Um, and then maybe you do want to use a little bit of medication at the end of the night to prevent a flare or when you get on a plane, or if you go for a long car ride, anything that can kind of trigger these symptoms. And I think it's fair to say that most people can have a, like, I will say almost a hundred percent of my patients, I can't say a hundred because that's just not realistic, but like 97% of patients can have a normal life if they just understand their triggers, but then also balance them out. I think really one of the big things that, that is the theme of this podcast in general is like communication, right? And, and Everything that you've mentioned and that we've all talked about today is really stuff where, you know, guys are very sensitive about pelvic pain or they've been through the ringer and they kind of don't want to go into all these details and really talk about it. But obviously, as we've learned today, is there's a lot of different ways to approach these problems, but we can't really fix it uh, unless you really are, are coming in and you're talking. And not only that, you're open to listening to the idea of actually having it as a pelvic problem. Maybe it's not just your prostate. Maybe it's not that UTI or STD that you Mm -hmm. said. So I think a lot of that is really, really important for our listeners to understand. Absolutely. I think one of the the things, at least for for our listeners to kind of know is like, 
I can't tell you how happy I am when I see the patient that I've sent out for pelvic floor physical therapy. Yeah. We, and we've been through like, you know, the ringer, we've gone through like the course of antibiotics and then they come back and they literally, you know, look at me and they go like, doc, I probably won't see you that often anymore because I'm feeling great. And like, I'm so happy. This wasn't treated like, you know, solely with meds, but like, you know, I'm really having a good understanding of my body. And it is just so, so much satisfaction in that, but also that like, you know, how can I get that message more out to like every single one of these other guys that like, you know, just got to trust the process, you know, that this pelvic floor physical therapy is going to do a lot for you. So I don't know. I get a lot of satisfaction. I always say that trust the process because it is a process. And I think that's really what, what guys have to understand too. I would love to give you a single dose of a medication and have you be a hundred percent better, but that's not how this works, you know? And so that's really why you need the specialist. That's really why you need to kind of say, okay, like I'm not, this is not, there's nothing to be embarrassed about. There's nothing like this is so actually very common and so treatable if you get the right care, you know? It's, it really is. It really is. And, um, just know that there are people out there and be being aware of your body and understanding that maybe this isn't something that is just like you said, fixed with one pill that there may be a longer process, but the process is going to be worth it at the end of the day is, is, is really important. And sometimes it's hard, uh, you know, especially as doctors and especially as patients, you want that one fix, you want that quick fix. But just as you know, you're fixing your knee, you're fixing your other muscles, your your back. It's not always just one step, right? It's it's a process. So, yeah, totally agree, one thousand um, percent. I do want to kind of veer off and kind of end with two. <laughs> See, that makes me nervous when that, you say that, Justin. Uh, I think I want to veer off. <laughs> like, oh God, where are we going with this? <laughs> Justin's gonna go there right now. He's gonna go there. I. I think, you know, you did such an, this is a question that you've been asked on other podcasts because you've, and it's, it's a, I think an important question for our male listeners. Um, and it's one where, you know, we were talking about sex and having sex with women and, uh, there's always that old adage of like, whether a girl was tight or loose. Um, and, um, the question is, is being is having a tight or loose vagina really a thing um and i just want you to answer that for for our listeners here because i think it's important for them my guys a tight vagina is not a thing okay like it's definitely not a thing and i think you guys know it too i think i think this has all come out just it's it's one of those social things you know where where guys are like oh yeah she's got a Mm -hmm. tight you know, whatever, but like, no, it's not a thing. And we're going to put it out there and like, <laughs> let's stop the madness now. All right. Very important. There it is. There is there. Now this other one here, I want to, uh, yeah, Kevin, this is the one, yeah. Cause I know, I know Justin, Justin got a little aggravated about this, you know, some of the, some of the things that were, you know, you know, stated on, on social media. So anyway, so another topic seen online is that guys can give girls UTIs after sex, like they give them an STD. You know, some people believe that getting a UTI after sex means that the couples, you know, pH don't match or the guy sleeping around with other women and gave them a UTI because of it. So the question is, can guys give Hard girls no. UTIs? Not, not, but not possible. And honestly, how, where did this ad even come from? Now I'm like intrigued. It, it, where, how did that start? This is the problem with. 
misinformation? Well, I think a lot of it, I think a lot of it was like, oh, you know, they're sleeping around. So maybe they have dirty semen from other bacteria. But I mean, the truth is, you know, this, the bottom line is, you know, some women are more prone to UTIs, unfortunately, than others. And I think, you know, there's a lot of different factors at play, whether you're using a contraceptive, sometimes spermicides can mess, mess up with stuff, uh, potentially different lubes, you know, the, the situation itself, there's just so many different factors involved that, you know, I don't know. Any thoughts on what I just said? Yeah, I mean, as, as providers, we're also learning about the vaginal microbiome and there's a gazillion things that can alter it. I mean, including things like, like you said, contraceptives, I mean, condoms for that matter, um, spermicides, but the vaginal pH or even hormonal changes just in general with women, because cortisol can change and that can change how our hormones interact down there. But Ultimately, and I get this question almost in a different way. I get, am I allergic to his semen? Because that's a question I get a lot, you know? So like, because, you know, after we have sex, I think I get a UTI or I get really itchy down there, but all my cultures are negative. So I must be allergic, right? There must be like an allergy happening. Um, And, you know, ultimately, I think, like I said, we're all learning about more about the vaginal microbiome as it comes. And yes, is vaginal pH an important aspect of itching and pain and discomfort? It sure is. But is is it possible for someone to be giving you a UTI with sex? It is not a sexually transmitted disease. Are there alterations in the vaginal pH? Sure. But our bodies are also amazingly, amazingly forgiving. And, um, you know, there's a great bug in our vaginas called the lactobacillus that can regrow and and rebalance our pH. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's important because Mm -hmm. you could get a lot of broken relationships with that rumor right there. Yeah. I have had guys come in that their girlfriends have made them come in and work them up to high heaven because they're convinced that they're giving them UTIs. I've seen it at least three times in the last six, seven months. Yeah. So you heard it here, folks. UTIs (laughs) are not sexually transmitted diseases. You have three Uh, doctors telling you that. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, I think this was really awesome. Do you have any final comments like on what we talked about today? Is there one final take home message you have for our listeners regarding the topics we were talking about? I mean, I would say that for all my guys out there, if you're having any discomfort, any symptoms that are bothering you, I mean, these are things that are really highly treatable. Seek care with a specialist. Don't be stigmatized by what people say. You're not weak if you are having pain after ejaculation or pain with ejaculation. These are all symptoms that your body is trying to tell you that something needs to be altered and it is fixable and there is hope and you should absolutely seek it. Awesome. Awesome. So where can our listeners find you, Sonia? I am um, online at www.pelvicpaindoc.com or on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook at Pelvic Pain Doc as well. Awesome. And you practice in New York City, I is that correct? I practice on the Upper East Side in New York City. So come see me. It's a great trip over there. <laughs> <laughs> She's fantastic. Highly recommend her um, if you're in New York or not. Just go see her because she knows her stuff. She's truly the pelvic pain doc. But um, thanks again, Sonia, for coming on. Uh, As always, thanks to our listeners. Um, 
Please download, subscribe, give us a review, five stars. As always, you can find our podcast on all podcasting platforms. Uh, go to our YouTube, subscribe there as well. Um, Kevin, what is our website? Our website is www.themanuppod.com. And then all of our social media accounts are at the Man Up Pod. Uh, so check us out there. Give us a follow. For Kevin, Sonia, and I, as always, thanks for listening. Until next time, have a good one.